0: Welcome to Port City Politics. I'm WHQR News Director Ben Shockman, And I'm Michael Pratz. And it's been a while since we've checked in, but we had issues we just couldn't not get to.
1: Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, it's been a little bit of a uh, uh, learning curve here, but we're uh, we're back, for the time being, at least.
0: Yeah, so we've got two things we want to talk about on today's show. The first is the race for North Carolina governor, and the second is the override of the current governor's uh, veto of a a new law that would do away with some background checks for gun permits. Um, what you want to tackle first?
1: Let's go ahead and jump into the governor's race right now.
0: Okay, so um, some of this is presumptive, and some of this has actually been announced. Um, but we are there's there's two stages here. First, we're looking at a primary uh, for the Republican side of this between lieutenant governor mark robinson and state treasurer dale falwell
1: and you know uh, state treasurer falwell just announced his candidacy last week uh pretty much i i think it was saturday he was at the forsyth uh county gop uh convention or something to that degree and made the announcement and then just uh uh quietly changed his uh his Twitter account to say state treasurer for uh, Dale Falwell for governor. So that is confirmed now, and the AP has confirmed it. Falwell himself has confirmed it. So we know this is happening, which is not really a surprise to me. You know, it's been something you and I have talked about. It's been something uh, I've talked about with GOP members, and I've talked with the treasurer in the past. Uh, do during interviews, he's been. Fairly cryptic, and I've I've just straight up asked him, I said, you know, when are you running for governor? Are you going to announce that? Because people kind of assumed that's the way it was going to go. And as for lieutenant governor, uh, as for the lieutenant governor right now, uh, as far as I know, he hasn't officially confirmed he is running. Is that still correct?
0: I think that is correct, yeah. But I, I feel like it could happen any day. It could happen while we're recording this.
1: Yeah, exactly. So it's that's pretty much a given. I think he has in the past, um, if not directly said it, certainly alluded to the fact he will be running, um, which will lead for an interesting race. And you and I talked about this. We tweeted about it. Um, This is going to be interesting for a primary because you're going to really divide the Republican Party. Um, And, you know, there's a lot going on within the GOP right now, especially with former President Donald Trump's indictment, which came down on Thursday afternoon slash evening um, from Manhattan DA uh, for his hush money accusations. So there's a lot shaking up in the party. I'm not sure. I I do believe that will uh, possibly rally the MAGA base. Um, which is, you know, the Donald Trump supporters who are a little more vocal, a little more. um, I want to use the word carefully, but a little more right of center. We'll put it that way. Um, And unless you've been living under a rock, you know what I'm talking about in terms of policies, in terms of rhetoric. um, That is all um, you know, that's what's driving a lot of the Republicans and the GOP. But you also have people that are in the GOP that are not looking forward to Trump's, uh, you know, campaign and running for the GOP nomination.
0: Yeah. And I think, you know, so far, the GOP in North Carolina has looked like it was supporting Mark Robinson uh, by picking him instead of the uh, the president of the Senate or um, the speaker of the House to Give the sort of counter speech to uh, Governor Roy Cooper's State of the State. Um, so it, yeah, I, I think that there are probably some center right people who would who would fall behind Falwell, and some further right people who would fall behind Robinson. Uh, Robinson, I just want to say this out and out, because I, I tweeted it, and I want to I want to double down. Um, has said some very bigoted things, and if you look up the definition of bigot, you can that is an objective statement. You know, he has singled out uh, the queer community. Um, I don't. We look forward to having him on the show here at HQR, maybe even on on this podcast to talk about some of his statements. He hasn't backed down when people have, you know, confronted him about uh, repeated things that he said, usually at churches um, about the gay community, about the transgender community. So I don't think this is some kind of histrionic overreaction to one thing that he said or something that he said taken out of context. And I don't know how if you continue to say bigoted things, you defend yourself against being called a bigot. But at the same time, I also have to say that I don't necessarily think the progressive left would embrace Dale Falwell. Um, for years, there's been a legal fight uh, over his office's um, exclusion of, of uh, transgender care from the state health plan, which he oversees as treasurer. Um, he and he's you know he's he's stood behind that. And that's been in courts for years. So I don't think Dale Falwell is beloved by the far left. But in terms of what the GOP is going to do, I definitely think that centrist minded people uh, might be glad to have an option that isn't Mark Robinson.
1: Yeah, exactly. And that's, you know, that's one thing we have to consider is, you know, the the liberal progressives are, you know, Democrats in general are not going to be able to vote in the primary. They can still show support for one candidate or the other. Um, But you vote for your party you're registered for during the primaries. And I want to make it clear, too, because uh, I spoke with a representative or a state senator I've talked to a lot recently, so I can't remember exactly who it was, um, who told me And I know this is true in New Hanover County, or at least it was, uh, and I believe it still is. The majority of North Carolinians, I'm told, are registered independents. And independents might not think they can vote in the primaries. That is a common misnomer. Um, So I want to encourage everybody, regardless of political affiliation or lack thereof, to get out and vote. Because even if you are an independent, you can select a primary race either the GOP or the Democrats or the Green Party, I believe um, you can select whichever primary race you want to vote in. So if there are more people who are moderates, uh, who are, you know, sitting on the fence post somewhere in the middle, either a little right, little left or directly in the center, um, you're going to have a choice to make to get out and vote in the primaries. And that could be the deciding factor um, in this race, because. The GOP in North Carolina has repeatedly stood behind, uh, by and large, has repeatedly stood behind uh, MAGA policies and Donald Trump-isms. So I think the party itself might, you know, want to give the lieutenant governor uh, the nomination. But you also have to consider the fact that he has been unsuccessful in running for governor. Um, So you have to wonder whether or not that's a winnable race and who you hit your wagon to. Um, So it'll be interesting to see if the GOP knows that these two candidates will split the party um, and there might be a majority of the party leaning one way or the other. You can't count out the independent votes who might decide, hey, I'm going to vote in the GOP primary to, you know, either a go with the lieutenant governor or B, pick someone more moderate like treasurer Falwell.
0: Yeah. uh, You know, the, the, the unaffiliated electorate in North Carolina is fascinating to me. It is a plurality. Um, you know, it's the I believe it was, it's over 33%. So yeah, it's, it's the largest block of voters, but inside that group, you know, I think you have a small number of people who are so far left that they've become unaffiliated and they've left the democratic party. On the other side, I also, I personally know some folks who have left, uh, left the Republican Party and uh, would have been members of what I think they would have called the Patriot Party if the Republican Party had split um, in 2020 after Trump lost. But I think right. the, I think you're right. I think the majority of them are center left and center right um, or more libertarian leaning. Uh, and I've, a lot of them that I've spoken with um, really don't like – they don't like the the level of rhetoric that Mark Robinson's been willing to go to. They're not really interested in, in the culture war stuff, um, where Robinson's b- been very useful for the Republican Party because he's the mouthpiece for the most extreme and sometimes hateful version of that culture war rhetoric. Uh, they're also not yeah. crazy about far left liberal progressive language. Um, that just kind of puts them off. So it will be interesting to see. Uh, again, you can only pick, you can only jump into the Democratic primary, Or the republican primary um at the at the level of the governor's race i don't know if there will be a democratic primary i I think josh dine might have it all sewn up
1: yeah and you know to be clear filing has not even begun i believe that happens in december if i'm uh if i recall correctly for the primary which will take place next year so this isn't a surprise people announce their nominations or their candidacy uh, before filing, but things can change. And we do know on the Democratic side, like you mentioned, Josh Stein is, uh, he has, he was the first, I believe, to make his announcement. And just so people know, Governor Roy Cooper is no longer eligible under the state constitution. You can serve for uh, for two, uh, two terms. Um, so just like the president uh, of the United States, you can only run for two terms for governor. Um, so he will not be in the party, uh, in the, in the primary, he won't be a candidate.
0: Yeah. Oh, good.
1: Oh, he can still, you know, his, his voice still has some sway. Um, so it'll be interesting to see, uh, his support or lack thereof for candidates who announce in the democratic primary. I really don't see any democrats that have really stood out to me that have been as um uh, vocal who have been as uh you know on tv in the media um and really getting their faces and their names out there which you know you and i have both talked about uh both attorney general stein and dale falwell um because we we truly appreciate as journalists we understand that you know, they want to get airtime and FaceTime, you know, typically they're angling for something like this, but it still helps us. And it still helps you, our listeners um, to know what's going on when, when politicians get out there and whether or not they're campaigning or angling for something, it still helps everybody to have that level of transparency. So while I understand that a lot of it is for uh, for airtime it, it still benefits us and it still benefits the voters.
0: Yeah, um, I will have to cool off my my uh, Pro-Falwell rhetoric uh, because we are going to actually be in an election season um, and to be clear I everything good about him We've said on on this podcast has been about his efforts towards government transparency uh, He actually won an award from the uh, I believe it was the open government coalition gave him the sunshine award <laughs> a couple years ago Yes, and yes. um Look, any candidate who pushes for government transparency, left, right, center, unaffiliated, Green Party, whatever party you're a member of, uh, I'm going to support that, and so I can I can sort of parse that off of the rest of a candidate's politics and say, as a candidate, do what you want, say what you want. I'm not endorsing or or you know casting aspersions on it, but any anyone who <laughs> is going to run on transparency and anyone while in office who helps journalists get open access to the records that are theirs by by law uh, I'm in favor of that
1: yeah absolutely and this is again it's not endorsements of any one candidate but uh, you know there's the idea and the the general uh, knowledge that reporters are supposed to be it doesn't always happen Uh, it doesn't know it doesn't always happen in local news I'll be honest with you uh, that reporters are impartial or don't have agendas but you know you should at least the the research that you do for a story needs to remain objective i don't really see a big problem with saying one thing is good or bad and transparency not just for myself not just for you and other reporters uh but transparency is paramount to democracy and to our government system so i have no problem giving praise to those who work towards ensuring transparency so again um We have been very vocal and appreciative of Treasurer Falwell, but that's not an endorsement. We don't do endorsements for political candidates. Uh, It's just not what we do. And, and, you know, most journalists do not endorse anybody. Uh, Some papers, op ed boards or the editorial boards will, um, you know, will lodge some sort of formal support. Uh, But reporters in general don't. And I will stand by that, that. We are allowed to say that people do good things, especially when it comes to good policy making or good governmental transparency, uh, which is not an endorsement, but it certainly will be interesting to see.
0: Yeah. Um, and all, all, the last thing I'll say on the other side of things is that uh, it, I, I think Cooper probably will be supportive of Stein. They've worked very closely. Uh, Cooper, being the former attorney general, um, had a number of ongoing lawsuits that Stein picked up and they've continued to work together on, on some of them. Also Stein, uh, if not the longest, it's one of the longest, um, you know, campaign ramps that he's given himself. He announced really, really early, uh, as yeah. Brett's pointed out, we're, we're a long way off from filing. And, uh, part of the reason that we are talking about a 2024 election now is that, you know, Stein sort of started the conversation earlier than we might've expected.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I mean, um, the the last thing I'll add is I think a lot of this will come down to, uh, putting your money where your mouth is and for both Stein and Falwell, um, because of their positions and it's not anything, it's truly not anything against Mark Robinson. Um, you know, I can have personal opinions that I won't air. Uh, however, when it comes to policy and decision-making, uh, The lieutenant governor doesn't really do a lot uh, in terms of, you know, rubber meets the road, whereas the treasurer and the attorney general do have those decision making abilities statewide that, um, you know, that get them that more airtime, that get them more uh, recognition across the state. So they are two household names, so to speak, especially within the news um, in terms of you know, policy rather than the lieutenant governor's uh media coverage, which has been, as you mentioned, uh really based on a lot of the rhetoric, uh and sometimes bigoted rhetoric, um towards different communities. So it will be again interesting to see how that plays out because the lieutenant governor doesn't really do much with policy making or decisions.
0: Yeah. Uh I I, for a long time, was very confused what the lieutenant governor was for, <laughs> but
1: yeah, president of the Senate, basically, you know, overseeing it like the vice president does, yeah, um, or president of the House, one of the two. Um, I think that's pretty much the, the ceremonial aspect of the position.
0: Yeah. All right. So we talked about governors. Let's talk about guns.
1: All right. So, the North Carolina General Assembly recently introduced well this past session and they've introduced it multiple times actually over the years and it's been shot down no pun intended um these gun rights bills and senate bill 41 um does a number of things one is a little bit um something people haven't really talked about which is a gun education course for gun owners um or you know Uh, a public service announcement type deal where they promote gun safety and education. Um, So I think most people have agreed. It's a good thing, whether or not that's really effective. um, You know, it's, it's kind of like dare programs and other things like that. Good intentions, but realistically, what is it truly doing? It's going to be hard to say. Um, So that's one portion portion of it. The main portion of the bill Uh, two big things, but the one we want to weigh in on uh, is the removal of the pistol purchase permit, the PPP. Um, That is in North Carolina. It's been a law since 1919 that if you want to buy a handgun, you have to get a permit from your local sheriff to purchase a handgun. That's the handgun permit. Uh, And when you go into a gun shop, Or even if you wanted to go and buy a pistol from a friend to gift one to a family member, that person receiving it has to have this pistol purchase permit. Um, And that was a way that, like I said, since 1919, uh, sheriffs basically got to have that final say. There's a clause in the law that gives me pause. And that is the good moral character clause. Yeah, let's. Uh, I,
0: I want to I linger on that for a second because part yeah. of the, part of this debate has been the allegedly racist origins of this law, and it's not hard to imagine a situation where a white sheriff in the twenties used this law to disenfranchise black residents of their Second Amendment rights. Is that yeah. is that a wild thing to say? or Is that accurate?
1: I I think it's fully accurate. I wasn't alive then, obviously, but. Uh, you know, it was a Jim Crow era law, and that is something that uh, supporters of removing this permit uh, have touted. And, you know, based on different policies um, and different rhetoric we've seen, um, the legitimacy of their claims to really be concerned about that aspect of it, uh, It. it It brings me pause. I'll put it that way. It gives me some question uh, as to, you know. It just doesn't feel like that's really the main driver behind this is, oh, we want to repeal a Jim Crow era law, Um, at least not for the reasons that people have stated. But it is a legitimate concern. And like you said, 1919 in the South, uh, very different. Well, not that different, honestly. I wish um, it was but, more. Di-
0: I wish it was more different.
1: <laughs> but there were, you know, it was it was more socially acceptable, uh, and you know, even praised to, you know, have these sheriffs, uh, white sheriffs, who, you know, just in general, Jim Crow era laws were racist. Uh, that was their intention, and you know, if you look at a history book, if you look at the way uh, that black people, minority communities communities were disenfranchised by these laws, uh, I think it's very fair to say um, that these era laws had a very pointed purpose, even though they might have been subverting some of the, you know, uh, the abolishment of slavery happened, you know, a couple decades before. Um, so it's, it's not a leap to say that Those And it was the GOP this time around and uh, the previous times around that supported this bill. And, you know, it it is a Jim Crow era law. And I can absolutely see the veracity of their thoughts that this was made to disenfranchise black people from owning firearms.
0: Yeah. So I want to talk about a more modern application of this good moral character. And again, I'm with you. I I am not a fan of um, the government making decisions based on. A subjective view of morality, because that's you're leaving. The sheriff is a very powerful person in the way that North Carolina government is structured, and letting a single person uh, decide what is moral and not moral. Ah, oh man, I'm not super comfortable with that. But that said, um, you know, a lot. Of, one of the arguments about this law from the right has been that it's redundant because you already have to go through the instant federal background check. But one thing that doesn't show up on federal background checks, as I understand it are things like TROs, Temporary Restraining Orders, or Domestic Violence Orders. These are not criminal charges. Um, they're not convictions. Right. They don't show up on the state database, like the, uh, the NC, Department of Public Safety Database. Um, but a sheriff's office would be familiar if, like, for example, uh, you had been repeatedly slapped with a TRO for abusing someone or stalking someone. Um, if people had made multiple complaints about you. Those things won't make their way into a federal database, but a sheriff at the local level would know about it. Um, And so I'm holding this point open because we put in a public records request to the New Hanover County Sheriff's Office, and they gave us some numbers on the number of applications they got and how many were approved and how many were denied. So back in 2021, there were uh, a little over 6,000 applicants who put in a total of uh, over 10,000 applications because people can, you know, an individual can buy more than one pistol, so you need more than one permit. Um, so back in 2021, they denied just shy of 300 applications. In 2022, uh, there were actually a lot less. There was only around 3,700 applicants and about 7,000 approved permits, and they rejected about 170. Um, and then for this year, we're not—you know—we're we're only a couple months into the year, but about 600 applicants, uh, just shy of a thousand permits, and 48 were denied. So what I want to do is take a look. At those denied permits and see what I could find out about them and basically get a sense of if the law was being used effectively the way I think the left was suggesting it should be used. Using your local knowledge and your local connections to know when someone is a bad actor and block them uh, if they were to slip through the federal background check. So I don't, I just, I have questions about how effective that really is, uh, but I'm willing right. to give it the benefit of the doubt and look at it.
1: Yeah. And let's just say, you know, the uh, the arguments are, oh, the for for supporters of the pistol purchase permit who say it increases gun safety and keeps it out of the hands of uh, potential domestic abusers, as well as those with mental health issues who might use it for self-harm and suicide. It's the it's a legitimate concern, because if someone has been um, maybe not. Uh, 1013 or you know involuntarily committed um, they could still pass that federal background check but maybe their family has checked them in maybe they have uh, you know had some mental health issues that they have willingly gone to uh, a psychiatric facility for Um, that again won't show up but it's possible the sheriff does have some more information about this and says hey listen this this seems like a bad idea this person has a history of uh, mental illnesses that don't reach the level of worth reporting, but I know about it. I'll also say, though, the the argument that sheriffs know their community the best. In 1919, that might be true. The population was significantly smaller. We have exponentially grown as a nation, as a world, uh, in terms of population. Now, do I believe that the uh that the sheriff knows really their community name by name i don't so i'm not sure i buy that argument completely but yes there are things that do reach the level of the sheriff's office might be responding like you said to issuing tro's or things like that so there's some validity to it there are some concerns that i do uh that i do acknowledge are very real And whichever way you fall on this, it's also worth pointing out North Carolina is, was an anomaly in the fact that they required more hoops to jump through to obtain a pistol compared to the rest of the country. Uh, It is not the majority of states that have these extra requirements. So that was unique in a sense, not just to North Carolina, but. Uh, In terms of the broader sense, yeah, it is unique to North Carolina uh, because there are other states that do similar things. But by and large, the federal background check is I I definitely won't call it the gold standard because we have seen the failures of it. Um, But that is the standard, I'll say.
0: Yeah. So to your to your point um, in you you filed a report recently for WBTV and you quoted uh, Sheriff Gary McFadden. Uh, in Mecklenburg yeah. County, uh, does Sheriff McFadden know all 1.1 million people in the county? No. No, he yeah. does not. Um, so, yeah, I, I take that point. Um, and also, you know, with a with a sheriff's office of that size, would the sheriff even be familiar with how many times, um, obviously TROs issued by the courts, but how many times the sheriff's office had, like, you know, gotten involved because of a TRO? Um, maybe, you know. So I, I think there's a lot of maybes around it. I will also say um, I have covered numerous, Numerous crime stories where guns were purchased or stolen, and obviously, when it's stolen, you're not you're not going to the sheriff's office to get a permit for your stolen gun. Um, I, I've talked to many people who, uh, largely on the left, who are in favor, or even in, in sort of in the middle, uh, people who are in favor of of gun control, but just didn't think that this was effective because bad actors. Um, you know we're already breaking the law when they got their handgun obviously that's kind of a self defeating philosophy but it's certainly something i've heard also it definitely didn't cover shotguns and rifles and stuff like that um right so if you really wanted to do grievous bodily harm to yourself or others and you couldn't get a pistol i mean you could go to a, a hunting store and get a 12 gauge and do a hell of a lot of damage that's not a reason to not try to control the use of handguns because they are used in the majority of violent crime here in wilmington um, they are, I believe, the most commonly used weapon for self-harm. Um, so yeah. certainly I, I get the impetus for it, but I've seen a lot of unnuanced outrage about the removal of this law. Um, and some of it had to do with the way the Republican Party did it, which was to wait for Democrats to not be on the floor and then just run it, run through the veto override real quick. Um,
1: yeah. So let's talk about that real quick. So yeah. this did get passed in mid-March. Um, It got sent to Governor Cooper's desk, which uh, if you've ever watched Schoolhouse Rock, you know how a bill becomes a law. Um, If you don't, go to go to YouTube and find the video um, of I'm just a bill. And it is applicable to North Carolina law and most state legislatures as well. Um, Basically, this started in the Senate uh senator danny earl Britt, i believe was the primary writer and sponsor of this bill uh it got sent over to the house there were i believe a couple changes made and then sent back for concurrence and then when that passes and it did it got sent over to governor cooper's desk who had 10 days to veto it uh he waited until day seven because day 10 would have fallen on a sunday which you can still do weekends do count and you can still veto something on a Sunday, but maybe he had golf, you know, tee times, I don't know. um, And wanted to do it on a Friday uh, afternoon. And that's what happened. The Senate quickly overrode the veto based on party lines. Um, Not a surprise. Uh, The Senate does have that veto proof majority. However, the house does not they are one vote shy. They have 71 GOP uh, uh, representatives in the North Carolina State House. They would have needed one of two things to happen. There there were three Democrats who voted in favor of this the first time around and sent it to Cooper's desk. However, the other thing that can happen if they didn't get that one extra vote from a Democrat, the other thing is there's no proxy voting in North Carolina for our lawmakers. So if one person didn't show up and the entire GOP voted on party line and supported this, it would pass. And that is what happened. And it happened by three Democrats not attending the session for whatever reasons. I believe someone was sick. Um, Whatever reasons people didn't show up, that is how this got pushed through. Had everybody been there and voted on party lines? Uh, Because, for the veto override, I don't believe any Democrats went against Cooper. It was still voted on party lines, but because there were uh, 71 Republicans there and only 42 or 40 40 uh, something uh, Democrats, it passed due to a lack of Democratic opposition because they didn't have the votes to override the Senate's uh, or to override the GOP's wishes.
0: Yeah. You know, at the end of the day, look, I know this people will point out that if you if you look at state houses across the country, this happens. Both sides do it. They take they take advantage of um, the real world numbers instead of the actual, you know, constituent member numbers. But I, I would never feel good about a binding legislative decision that was made on kind of a gotcha kind of move. I don't know. Just I I'll never feel good about that.
1: Yeah, you know, regardless of where you stand on that, I think that's a great point. And I do believe if the shoe were on the other foot, um, I I do feel like Republicans would be upset with someone pushing through a veto override, um, especially if it was the GOP in the governor's mansion. And uh, but, you know, the, the Democrats controlled the House and the General Assembly as a whole. Um, you know, I think both Both sides of that, regardless of where you stand, I think most people would agree um, it is a bit underhanded at at best.
0: Yep. You know, and when I'm out there in the field talking to unaffiliated voters, that kind of thing is one of the things that comes up. People uh, who have left their party, who've left the Republican Party, who have left the Democratic Party, because that kind of stuff just feels antithetical to the spirit of democracy Um, But that's about as far as I think I should go on that topic for now.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, you know, I do want to point out the other portion of this bill, because I mentioned there's three parts to it. Uh, We talked pistol purchase permit, which we can revisit if you have anything more. Uh, We talked about the gun safety reminds me of a .A D.A.R.E. type program, just say no to drugs. And this is encouraging safety, which I think most people agree, um, again, is a very good thing. But the, the efficacy of it. Um, I I just don't know how those public service announcement programs um, actually how well they do, but that's neither here nor there. Um, The final part of this, which Governor Cooper tweeted out about, and I do take issue uh, with any politician, left or right, uh, being disingenuous uh, or leaving out some of the key facts of this. And that is that this bill will now allow churches and other houses of worship. I'm just going to call them churches because that's what everybody knows them of, but this applies to Jewish temples. This applies to uh, non-denominational temples, whatever you want to call them, places of worship, churches. uh, It allows people in churches to carry weapons, which also have a school or educational building attached to them. So people have said, oh, this is going to put guns in the hands of students. Well, it's more nuanced than that. And I I can understand the optics of it. Um, but in North Carolina, churches have been allowed to, uh, parishioners, whatever, whatever people are called, congregation members, uh, have been allowed to carry firearms and weapons on church property for several years. Uh, However, if that church also had a pre-K program, um, and we've seen, you know, most people know that a lot of pre-K or preschool or uh, even secondary school, high schools, um, those churches that might just have that on their campus, but it's not within their church building, and it's certainly not during services, those churches, are not allowed to have people uh carry a weapon because you know technically it's school property. Um this changes that those churches now are allowed to you know people are allowed to carry on church. And whatever again whatever your take is on this, I think we can say you know very objectively churches have become targets. I can at least understand the desire to have armed security. I don't truly understand the desire to have uh, you know church members uh, packing heat in the pews uh, because you know especially if something actually does happen um, and your church is targeted um, having you know a hundred people armed will probably lead to some crossfire and um, unintended casualties as I always Uh,
0: yeah yeah as I always say I, I extrapolate from people's driving ability and if you have 100 people in cars, it only takes two people who can't drive to ruin everyone's day. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. The, yeah, the odds of having 100 well-trained, coordinated marksmen, uh, that's, that's not a church congregation. Um, that's, a, that's a division of Marines.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So um, the likelihood of everybody in your church who owns a gun being proficient In it, And that is the unfortunate side of uh, gun control, which we can get into at another date. Uh, But the fact of the matter remains that a lot of people buy weapons and firearms that they don't have the training and they don't put in the time at the range. They don't get professional training. Um, So put it this way, if you know, if if I attended a church where I knew people were uh, carrying weapons in the pews in the very, you know, terrifying, terrible situation that. Uh, Your church is targeted by a mass shooter or someone, a a bomber or whatever it may be. Um, I would certainly want to be sitting in the front pew because I would not trust having that many people with firearms um, to actually get it right and not have some friendly fire. Um, The difference here, though, if um, the people I've spoke to who supported this, you know, armed security is another factor, not having to hire uh, police officers, but you could hire your own armed security guards or have, you know, uh, two people who are members of your church who might be veterans, who are combat veterans, who can be trusted to, you know, maintain control of their firearms. Um, That, that's one argument for it. But at the end of the day too, this bill is more nuanced than that. You cannot have, guns on church property whatsoever if there is any school activities going on. um, That also means you can't just stash them in the teacher's desks um, and and wait for people to come into school on Monday morning. That's not what this says. It's basically for Sunday services. I'm just going to say as a broad, I understand that's not everybody's religion or uh, how they participate in worship, but For all intents and purposes, we're just going to call it Sunday service, Um, armed security there, or even, you know, your your everyday parishioner carrying a firearm. That is what's allowed. It's not going to leave guns uh, or at least it should. not It shouldn't allow people to leave guns on church property um, and where students of, you know, pre-K programs or even, like I said, secondary school, high school uh, can find these weapons and arm themselves. Um, with them. So that's where I took a little bit of issue with people saying this is going to put guns into school children's hands, because that is the emotional rhetoric side of things. Um, that's not the way the bill is written. Uh, can it happen? Can people be negligent? Absolutely. Um, but that's not what the, the bill is more nuanced. So that's kind of where I, that that's my understanding of it right now. And this did become law. So uh, everything we're talking about is not hypothetical at this point. That veto has been overridden. Um, so here we are. Welcome to 2023.
0: Yeah. The last thing I'll say about this is I've had some private conversations with people in the Jewish community um, who are thinking seriously about the really disturbing uptick in anti-Semitism over the last couple of years. <sighs> Something that we we thought we had confined to the bin of history, but no, Um And I think that changes the conversation for Jewish temples um, about whether or not they would want armed security. And I think that's part of a a broader phenomenon where people, especially people on the left, um, are often painted as being, you know, explicitly anti-gun. And, you know, a lot of the gun control rhetoric and legislation does come from the left. But I think when you're part of a marginalized group uh, facing very real physical threats, you... You reevaluate that. I mean, the the best example was when the um, the Black Panther Party sort of collectively decided to arm and train themselves with firearms to protect themselves from racist police, if nothing else. And uh, by the way, the only time the NRA has ever been in favor of gun control (laughs) was when, um, you know, militant black men were walking around with their legally owned weapons. The NRA went, crap. Well, hold on. (laughs) Yeah. But I I do think that that's part of the conversation um, is I, I don't think that's. A reason to just take off all the brakes on gun control, but certainly there is sure. there's some nuance to be had in that conversation there. So that's that I'll leave my contribution to that uh, messy, messy debate there.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And again, I just want to reiterate that nothing we're saying here is a position. Um, it's not an endorsement of anything. We are just it's it's our job to look at things objectively and objectively speaking. There are some legitimate concerns and arguments from both sides and it would be it would be bad journalism for us not to acknowledge that there are real concerns on both sides
0: yeah fair enough well i think that's a good place to leave this episode
1: yeah i think so and hopefully we will be seeing you on a more regular basis here Um, i am in charlotte i am trying to get my bearings up here it's only been about uh, four weeks as of today um so bear with us we will hopefully be back up and running more regular um as we move forward
0: all right so for now we're just going to say we will see you soon